Well, if you've been here for the last uh, several weeks, not long ago, I introduced uh, this consecutive expository series in the Old Testament book of Micah, one of the minor prophets, but not minor in significance, Uh, very important things that all of God's Word has to say. And last week, in this study of Micah, we were looking at chapter 3, and there we saw the weakness of the old Jerusalem. Remember, in cha- already in chapter 1, a warning came from Micah for the northern kingdom, for Samaria, and their judgment was imminent, and indeed it came. Judah's judgment also for some of the same sins, maybe not quite as horrible as the north, but they too were under the sentence of judgment. But at this point in time, that had not yet been carried out. And so, in Jerusalem, there was corruption abounding. The weakness of the old Jerusalem and its corrupt leaders would one day soon fall. That's what Micah prophesied and predicted. But now, like a bolt out of the blue... Micah in chapter 4 brings into this dark, foreboding, doomsday scenario, he brings a ray of hope to the narrative, and we get a glimpse of the new Jerusalem that will one day be restored far beyond her former glory. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Micah. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. 
May God add the blessing to the reading and the hearing of this, his holy word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord, that we should walk in your might and power and light all the days of our lives. Father, thank you that you have come in Christ to bring restoration in our brokenness. And Father, as you give us a glimpse of the Jerusalem that is to come, that in some senses has already and yet will more today, Father, and in days to come, give insight to us now. Help us to understand and apply your word and receive the engrafted word with meekness. And may it yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in us as we walk with you. In these days, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So far, I've introduced, uh, I told you the first three chapters of Micah haven't been full of a lot of hope. I told you at the outset that this is a book of, of daring hope and very dreadful warning and judgment. There's both, but mostly up until this point in chapter 4, today it changes. But up until now, it's been pretty dark. Judgment has been coming on the north and will be coming on the south soon for its sins. But now, tonight or today, we see that that though human hearts are full of idolatry, our lives are often marked by the misuse of power and privilege, as we talked about last year, for last week for personal gain of those that are in positions of power, where injustice takes place. That is much of what marked the world in that day and even still in our time as well. And because of that, judgment was coming. The train as essentially had in some senses already left the station. And it was coming upon Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. But there had been a stay. And now Micah, as it were, completely switches to a whole other perspective. He comes out of the doomsday darkness and the warning and the foreboding. And now starts talking about promises. Starts talking about restoration of a time that will come that will change the circumstances as they are now. Amazingly, what was an oracle of doom has now become an oracle or prophecy of salvation. This is a, it is switched on a dime. From a prophecy of doom, an oracle of doom, to an oracle of salvation. Micah abruptly shifts from the judicial sentence reducing Jerusalem to a heap of rubble and a temple that is ruined to a place of a vision hidden in the future 
that is going to blow our minds and those who were hearing what he was saying. It's almost incomprehensible in light of what was really going on at that time. And yet Micah is saying, you're not going to believe what the Lord is going to do in that day. You see, one day, this place that's going to be taken down and utterly destroyed, a future iteration of that will one day be the place of where there will be justice and peace reigning supreme under the hand of the Lord our God. So, with that in mind, Micah moves from the dismantling of the old Jerusalem to the rebuilding of the new Jerusalem. I think that's the slide we we have there, uh, don't we? Did we not have that? The other slide? No, okay. No, we don't have it. All right. Uh, So, here's the outline. The Most High God, the promise-making God, and the promise-keeping God. That's what we're going to be looking at briefly this morning. All right, what about the Most High God? The prophecy provides Micah and his audience with a vision of what God will ultimately do in Zion, which is the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. So in that sense, the New Jerusalem is the title of this message today. The New Jerusalem. It begins by pointing forward to a future time with these words in verse 1. In the last days. Now, before all you prophecy pundits uh, get all spun up and get all uh, salivating uh, and, and thinking that has something to do with something way, way, way still off in the future in, in, a, in a complete sense, just hold on. <laughs> because that really doesn't mean that. That's not what the way this is used. What is really being said, the phrase is often misunderstood. In the last days. When you see that, that's often misunderstood. Because it's not a technical expression for the end of history. That's what a lot of people think it is. It's an expression technically saying, this is the end. It's all finished here. It's all done. Everything's happened, and now it's in the the heaven of heavens to come. No, a lot of times this can simply be referring to a time yet future. It could be far off, but it also could be relatively near. The point is, it's better translated instead of in days to come. I mean, uh, it's better translated in days to come rather than the last days. So instead of the last days, it would be in this context, it would be saying in days to come. So basically Micah's saying, hey, this is not the end. It's looking bad now, but there is good news coming. And that's somewhere in some sense, as we're going to see later, within their reach. It's not something that is millennia away. Micah promises 
that the day is coming when God's rule will be established and it will be the highest place which symbolizes God's supremacy. Did you notice that, that language? It will be the chief or highest of the mountains. Now, what were in that time, what were mountains? They were They were signifiers and places of protection and places of power. If you know anything about the fortresses of Herod the Great in the time of Jesus' birth, he had these fortresses, high mountains. That's what Masada was. That was what Herodian was. They were high places of power and significance, and yet Micah is saying that it will be the mountain of Jerusalem, Mount Zion upon which Jerusalem is built, that one day, despite what it looks like now, is going to be a place of incredible might and power under the purpose of God. Mountains are where God rules and where God dwells, and Nika is saying, this is going to be the highest of the high places. The pagans had all these high places, all these mounds that they tried to worship and set up their, their, their territory and their, their ability to rule. And yet God is saying through Micah, the day is going to come and God is going to be supreme of over all in a, a sense in which it will be clear to all. And the second verse, he talks about the house of the God of Jacob. That's just another way of referring to the temple. The house of the God of Jacob is the temple that sits on Mount Zion. Now, in the coming judgment, Jerusalem and her temple will be a ruin. We know that's already been foretold, and that's going to happen. So right now... Micah's talking about something that's on the other side of that experience. But it's good news. The coming judgment and her temple will be a ruin. But notice that one day, one day, the nations will be flowing into this despised, rejected, and destroyed city. Something will happen and and in one day, the nations will be streaming and coming to this city of destruction. So what is this stream of pilgrims looking for when they get there, when they come? Whenever they come to this future Israel, this, I mean, future Jerusalem, what is it that they do? Is the purpose for coming for them just to see how great and exalted the mountain is and its temple? Well, that, that you know, may indeed have been beautiful, but was that what they were coming for? No, they were coming to hear the word of the Lord. They were coming to hear God's word and to be taught in his ways. Literally, it, the word Torah is there, or law, but it also can be translated the teaching. So they're coming for the word of God and being taught by it how to walk in God's ways. What a change to where they are now. What an incredibly different circumstance. The law coming from Jerusalem, the teaching of the Lord from God himself. Now, 
the second part of this is what, it, what I'm calling the, the promise-making God. Promise-making God. You see, every promise ever made that you make or I make or anyone makes, every promise ever made is always dependent on how good it is by the promise maker. (laughs) So if someone's promised something to you, but if their word is not good, then it's a fall, it's a failed promise. It's not, it's not going to, it's not going to do any good. So Every promise made is dependent upon the promise maker and whether or not they are trustworthy and can be counted on. You know what? We often make uh, a lot of promises for for maybe not the best reasons. Human beings make promises because we've done something wrong. Have you ever noticed that, your children? Uh, um, uh, Mom and Dad, I I promise I I won't ever do it again. I, I, I promise I won't ever do it again. That's when they're in trouble. You ever notice that? Uh, that's, that's just a human nature. You see, we often make promises when we've done something wrong. But what God is promising here in this text, God is promising to be the God that makes promises to us. And it's not because of something done wrong But it's because of what he has done, not us. The promise is made not because of our wrongness, but because of his rightness. The promise is made, I'm not counting on you guys to get yourself out of this mess. I'm going to be the one who is going to guarantee this? Just like, remember, the cloven pieces in, in Genesis 15? When Abraham saw the smoking flax walking between the pieces, it was a way of saying, God is saying, I will go into the prom- and secure the covenant promises so that they are sure and steadfast and true. He did it himself, not on Abraham's faithfulness, and reliability, but he did it on his own. And that's what God is once again doing here again in a new way. When God makes promises to us, you see, God is not asking us to bring something to him that we don't have. He knows that we are but dust. He knows that we're sinful. But to come to him for what he's done for us, to come into what he's done for us. That's what he's calling us to. Get out of that sinking ship. Get out of that burning rubble and come to me. Come to me and find peace and rest. You see, I want you to listen to this promise that God made through Jeremiah. Many of you know this promise. It's one of the most famous passages in Scripture, perhaps. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. The promise of the new covenant. Listen. This is the covenant that I'm going to count on you to make sure you fulfill all of your responsibilities. Right? No. This is the covenant that I will make, God says. This is the covenant that I 
will make with the house of Israel after those days. Judgment's coming, but a day is coming in which he will make a covenant that's based on his accomplishments, not on ours. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What an incredible covenant promise. What incredible good news. What a promise making God. God says, I'm going to make this promise based on what, who I am, not on who you are. That's what we call grace, brothers and sisters. That's what we call the gospel. You see, to hope in the promise of God is not unreasonable. First, because of his character, and second, because of his power. That's why we can count on it. That's why we don't have to be afraid. We can be assured He is a trustworthy promise maker. In Micah 2, we saw that all human beings are damaged because of things like oppression, violence, justice, war, injustice, war, and on and on the list goes. Have you ever thought about how many wars have been fought to end all wars? Remember what World War I was supposed to be? The The war to end all wars. We're still at it. We can't bring it. We can't accomplish it. The hits keep on coming, don't they? The hits keep on coming. But don't we long for such a day? Wouldn't it be amazing if such a day could ever come? Well, listen again to verse 3. Listen. And he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. I don't know where that is, but I want to get there. What was once used to destroy and bring death will now be used to sustain plant and sustain life. 180 degrees than what we know in this fallen, broken world. God surgically restores our lives and will one day restore his whole world. That hadn't happened yet, by the way. Not fully. By any means. But one day he will. 
He's taking down those weapons that were used and he's transforming and he will transform and restore them as instruments of life. Now, you, you and I can't see that right now. We're not in a perspective, in a time, in a place where we can see that just happening in abundance all around us. But, my friends, it has in some sense happened before. It has happened definitively in principle in the coming of the one. And it will someday happen perhaps again, as it has many times in human history. But it will only be fulfilled ultimately at the end of all history. You see, the perplexing question is this, when and how will this happen? I mean, sounds great, Joe. This is wonderful good news, wonderful stuff, but I can't see any relevance. We still need a military, right? We still have bad actors. We got things that we have to do. We're not yet in the middle of this. There's still so much wrong. There's still so much that's not right, that's still broken. But yet, God is telling us through Micah, you need to keep your eye on the ball of what I am doing. Because it's ultimately going to change everything. And guess what? I will win. And if you're with me, you're on the winning team too. If you've trusted in me. You see, the perplexing question, when and how will this happen? Let me suggest this to you. I believe it's true that in some sense, some of what would happen in that future day that he references in verse 1 could be experienced in those of that time and that era. In other words, I think Micah was saying something like, hey, by the way, all these wonderful things are going to happen, but don't worry about it. They're, they're millennia away and it has no relevance to you. No. He was saying something within a few generations, at the, at the longest probably, there are going to be amazing changes. And though he's using, again, a lot of metaphorical language, he is saying it's going to be a better world, at least for a time. Maybe this was what happened in the time in 701 when Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, came and almost took Jerusalem away. But he didn't. And you know why he didn't? It's called revival. God sent a revival in the days of good King Hezekiah. And 185 of the forces of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, were destroyed by the angels of the Lord, by the angel of the Lord. And Jerusalem was spared. And because of that revival, there were changes. There were, there were returning to the word, the law, all kinds of things happened. Maybe that's what Micah, in the most front-loaded sense, was talking about. 
that would come. And using this metaphorical language, it's going to be a good day is the bottom line. But that can't be all of it either. And it's not. That could have been one near installment. But that cannot encompass all that God intends in this promise restoration. One day, one would come who would die on Jerusalem's mountain and take the judgment for our lack of righteousness. And now his rule and his dwelling are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 12. So who is this? But you, Peter is talking, or, or the, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that is. The writer of Hebrews saying to Christians in the first century, after Jesus has come, died, been risen, and ascended to the Father, and poured forth his spirit, things, the world is in a different place. The world is changing. Incrementally at first, but the plan goes on and on. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Not to the old Jerusalem, to the new Jerusalem. To the city of the living God. Same language. The heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in festival gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to, listen, Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. So who's going to bring this about? Who did in his coming and his dying and his rising and in his ascension? He's been since then bringing this about and throughout revivals all throughout history, he's been bringing the word of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord, changing this planet and wherever it goes in its missionary endeavors, more and more of this better world is coming. But you see, there's even still more. Because even though we see revivals and renewal and great changes in history where God has done great things to bring a better world, yet it's not complete yet. It's not complete. I want to read to you a few lines from a song called One Day. Some of you may know it. It's by a Hebrew named Matis Yahu. Matis Yahu. In the middle of the song, it says this. Sometimes in my tears I drown, looking at the, the mess that we often see. But I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know someday it will all turn around. Someday it will all turn around because 
all my life I've been waiting for. I've been praying for. For the people to say that we don't want to fight no more. There will be no more war. And our children will play. One day. One day. One day. One day. One day. One day. Jesus will bring that day. In some senses now, but not complete. We'll have to wait for that. But remember, he is the promise not only making God, he's the promise-keeping God. He's the true promise-keeping God. Listen to this quote by Stephen Um. Listen to this. Here's the principle. What you know to be true of the future will inform your experience now. That's profound. What you truly know and understand of the future that's coming, that's sure and certain, that helps you in the now, in the nitty-gritty and the tough parts. That's what he's saying. What you know to be true of the future will inform your experience now. What you know of your future will inform the way you endure all suffering, oppression, and justice in this life. We will be able to endure it if we know that God has already in Jesus brought about our restoration. It's already been accomplished in Christ. We've died and our life is hidden with him. Romans 8, 28 And he will one day fully restore us. There's that now and not yet. Part now, but not yet. But one day that too will come. We will be able to experience all the harsh conditions and the dungeon while we are living here on earth with the knowledge that the promise maker is also the one who is the promise keeper. What good news. What wonderful truth and how important that is to know of what is already assured in the future. It's not by and by in the sky pie. It's everything you need now and I need when things are hard here. Because we know they have been assured by the promise-making, promise-keeping God of Scripture. Amen? You see, the Lord makes his promises and fulfills them. He makes his promises and he ultimately will fulfill them. And so Micah calls for a liturgical response in that last verse. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. And forever. We will walk in the name of our God forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your promises that do not fall and do not fail. Thank you, Father, that that we don't fully understand how those promises are all going to be realized, when and where and how. 
Lord, you haven't given us all the tools for that to understand that. We're out of our, above our pay grade when we try. But Lord, we thank you that there is enough, the breadcrumbs that you leave us and the things that you show us and the way in which you, it progresses in your purposes, ripen, unfolding every hour. Father, even when there's a bud has a bitter taste, you told us that sweet shall be the flower. And Father, we thank you for that truth. And Lord, for the gospel and for the one who came and to ultimately be the one who would fulfill and achieve all of these grand and precious and exceeding great promises. Our Lord Jesus Christ, your only son. May we behold him and may we now know his presence in the taking of this, his meal. And we pray in Jesus' name.